In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, true tales of law enforcement encounters with the paranormal and the strange. I yell through the window. I'm like, hey, what What do you want? And he seemed out of it, like he wasn't really sure where he was or who he was, but he had kind of a weird, far-off look in his eye, and he yelled through the window, where am I? And I yelled back, what do you mean, where are you? And he's like, I don't know where I am. And I said, well, you're... At 17th Street, and then he just started to walk away. And so I pull forward a little bit, I look up at the rearview mirror, and he's not there. This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. If you have paranormal activity in your home or business, you need Paranormal Contractors. Call 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. In a profession dominated by logic, law, evidence, and science, are there some things we can't explain? Well, we're about to join a veteran crime scene investigator whose new book, Fingerprints and Phantoms, explores 26 chilling experiences spanning two decades. We'll meet a young girl who receives a visit from her mother the day after her mother was murdered. 
we'll find out whether spirits follow those investigating their deaths home and then stay. Is it possible for someone who's not dead to be haunting his own office and will investigate a child's toy telephone acting as a link to the other side? Paul Ramash graduated from Weber State University in Ogden, Utah with a bachelor's degree in forensic science and a minor in photography. He's worked as a crime scene investigator for Weber Metro CSI since 1997. Paul has certifications through the International Association for Investigation in Latent Fingerprint Examination and Forensic Photography. He is the author of Fingerprints and Phantoms. Paul Ramash, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Richard? I'm terrific. Thank you. First of all, I have to congratulate you on the, uh, the title of your book, Fingerprints and Phantoms. That's a fantastic title. Well, thank you. <laughs> I thought it, tra- it covered everything that the book is all about. So, Well, let's talk about your, first of all, a little bit about uh, your work for Weber Metro CSI uh, in Utah. Now, what is a latent forensic expert? Is that just is that someone who dusts for fingerprints, or what does that involve exactly? Well, usually the term latent fingerprint examiner refers to not the person who dusts the fingerprints, but who compares them to the known fingerprints of suspects or runs them through the APHIS computer or things like that. So that's usually what that uh, term refers to. But I actually do both. I, uh, at our shop, we, uh, do everything basically. So I go out into the field and collect the evidence. And then if it's fingerprints, then I'm the one who runs it to the computer. And then after it comes back from the computer, I'll make the match and do those kind of things. So yeah, we, we do most everything in our shop, DNA and some different things like that. We have to send out to our state lab, but at Weber, we do a lot of our own stuff. And and is there anything new on uh, on the forensics and crime scene investigation scene in terms of of technology or methodology that has you kind of excited these days? That makes maybe catching the bad guys a little easier. Oh yeah, there's always there's always new stuff, and uh, two of the things that we're really excited about. One of them is called rapid DNA. And so as it stands now, and maybe maybe uh, RCMP up in Canada, you guys have better technology than a lot of places down in the U.S., but right now it takes a long time to get results on DNA. And a lot of that has to do with backlog. Uh, our state lab has a pretty big backlog. But there's a new system. It's kind of in its, its infancy, and we're just getting a feel for it, but it's called rapid DNA. And it promises to have DNA results back within minutes and maybe not quite minutes, but at least within an hour. And so if you have a pretty good sample of blood, it doesn't work on trace samples very well. But if you have like some blood or some semen or something like that, that's a you know really rich source of DNA and you're, you're sure it's a single source, this rapid DNA technology can make that match pretty quick. And so that's when that thing really gets up and going, that's going to revolutionize uh, a lot of things. Because right now, DNA is great, but it takes a long time and is expensive. And so, yeah, that, we're really excited about that. And then one thing that we just recently got, the concept isn't new, but the equipment is a lot better now. Um, full-spectrum photography. Uh, Fuji has a full-spectrum 
camera that is really, really nice and really, really easy to use compared to some of the old full, full spectrum cameras. And with full spectrum, you can photograph in the UV range and also in the infrared range and the infrared, uh, Photography has a lot of applications to document examination. You can see inks. Uh, some inks will disappear, so you can see alterations to documents. Um, infrared photography is really good for finding blood on dark clothing, but it'll also see through blood that's uh, in a thinner layer, so you can actually see through blood on, say, a homicide victim and see their wounds that are covered with blood. And then in the UV range of that, UV, when you hit blood that's faint with the UV light, it gets darker. And so this camera can photograph uh, fingerprints and blood that were almost invisible to the naked eye, but if you hit it with the right light source. And so, like I said, UV and infrared photography have been around for a while, but this camera now, the Fuji, is so easy to use and it's going to be a big game changer. Fascinating. And of course, you're not just catching uh, or collecting bad guys and fingerprints. You're also collecting stories of the strange and the paranormal, true tales of law enforcement encounters with the paranormal and the strange, to be exact. And um, where, so where do these, I believe there are 26 uh, stories or tales in, in uh, fingerprints and phantoms. How do you collect these stories? Where did they come from? Well, it's it's a good question, and it really boils down to, in, in law enforcement, one of the things I enjoy about this job is it has a very rich storytelling culture about it. And ever since I was a little kid, I loved stories, and I loved mysteries and all sorts of cool things. And so I've always had a fascination for that, you know, seeing shows like In Search Of and different things, you know, I've always had a fascination for, I guess you could say the paranormal. But like I said, in law enforcement, there's a rich storytelling culture and that's fostered because there's a lot of downtime. On TV, forensic shows, you know, there's nonstop action and everybody's running around shooting and doing all these things. Well, in reality, we sit around and wait a lot. And we're either waiting for a search warrant to be signed or you're waiting around for your turn in court or you're working a graveyard shift and nothing is going on. So you go to 7-Eleven or a convenience store and, and talk. And so there's, like I said, there's just always time to tell stories. And some of the stories, you know, I wouldn't want to write down in a book because my mother couldn't read them. You know, there's some, <laughs> some unsavory stories. But the ones that I really liked are, you know, because law enforcement officers and forensic people do deal with death, they're out at night, they're in isolated locations, weird things happen to us. And so just over the years, I've just, you know, asked people, and some people volunteer the stories, some people you have to kind of drag them out of them, but just over the years, I've collected these stories. And these represent just a few of my favorite ones. There's some, there's a lot of stories out there. And since the book has come out, I've heard even more. But yeah, just, just sitting around, uh, talking and listening to stories you know, over the course of probably eight or so years when I was really actively collecting that. That's where these came from. And it's an interesting source because 
police and crime scene investigation is all about evidence and it's all about science and and you've just demonstrated you know some of the science and the developments in science that are aiding crime scene investigation and yet you have the the collision of these two worlds you've got the paranormal the unexplained meets evidence and science so how do you reconcile those two if at all well, it, it's that's a good question, too, and a lot of people have brought that up. And the way I explain it is that there are things that happen to people that are not readily explained. And whether that is seeing UFOs or ghost stories or Bigfoot or all the things, you know, that that you love to talk about on your radio program and that I love to he- hear about, there, things are happening to people. Now, you can discount some of those things, and, and I'm actually kind of skeptical. Like, some people will tell me stories, and I'm like, oh, no, that was just this. I'm actually pretty skeptical about things. But, you know, you, you can dismiss some of the stories that you hear as misidentifications. And you can dismiss some of the stories that you hear um, because the people who tell them to you might have some mental problems or some delusions or whatever, drugs. There's that aspect of it. But there's always a certain percentage of the stories that that I personally can't just discount right out of hand. Now, that goes hand in hand with the way I was trained to think as a crime scene investigator. So my my mentor, his name is Russ, and he took me in out of college and, and trained me, and he was my boss for many years. The way he taught us to think at a crime scene is the way it really needs to happen. Because you do not want a theory that you're hooked to going into an investigation. You really want to have a blank slate. And that's how that's how Russ taught us. He would go into a crime scene and he would look around and you know, people would be, hey, I think this happened, or hey, I think that happened. And Russ would be like, Well, no, let's check it out. And he would just look and he would gather information and he would look and and turn over this rock and turn over that and and eventually he would accumulate his information from the bottom up. There wasn't a theory that he was hooked to. It was a bottom up type of approach. Well, when the end of the investigation rolled around or when we had turned over every proverbial rock, he would then make his uh, decision or his theory on what happened. And in all the years I worked with a guy, he was never wrong. And so it it trained me to, to try to think that way, that you don't, don't go into any situation with preconceived notions. Now, I think that's the way uh, a lot of people in the science or the academic world approach the paranormal. They have already made up their mind that it's not true, that it's a hoax. And so no matter what the story, no matter what what's going on, they're anchored to that fact that it's not true and they don't let any of that let any of that information sway them. Since I tried to think from the bottom up, like I said, sure, I can I can rule out some things, but there are certain stories that I just can't rule out. And so the book really doesn't uh, try to make any conclusions about, well, I think ghosts are this always or that. or You know, it's not a, a, a paranormal research book in that sense. It's, it's a collection of fun stories, but I just, like I said, I can't rule certain things out, and it's against the way I'm trained to think to do so. So tell me, uh, here's a for instance, about this child's telephone, a toy telephone, uh, that 
appeared, at least on the surface, to have a connection to the other side. First of all, where did this story come from? And then let's get into it. So so this story, this story is from uh, one of my coworkers. Uh, her name is Shanae, and, and she contributed quite a few stories to the book. And it was uh, a story that happened to one of her relatives. And they had moved into this apartment and didn't really you know, know what was going on uh, beforehand. But a lot of strange things started to happen. And one day, the child was playing with a, it was a toy phone. And uh, one of the ones with the little, uh, you don't see them as much anymore. Kids have toy cell phones. Well, kids now have real cell phones. But, you know, a few years ago, the kids would have the, the, the toy phones. And, and the, the child was talking on the phone as if, you know, talking to somebody. And the mom thought, oh, isn't that cute? Uh, the child's playing with the phone and having a good time. And all of a sudden, the mom, plain as day, hears a man's voice coming from the telephone say, hello. Oh, and at it, it, that point, uh, you know, she freaked out. But that was not the only weird thing that happened in that apartment. So she actually, she actually injured herself because one night she wakes up and looks down or she looks towards the open door of her bedroom. And because those of you with kids know you usually don't sleep with the door closed because then the kids will, you know, the kids can come in if they need you. So she slept with the door open and she looked and she saw the silhouette of a man standing in the door. And so she freaked out and went to get out of the bed and fell down, kind of got tangled up in the blankets and fell down and actually injured herself. And so, I mean, there a lot of weird things happened in this apartment, and they eventually found out that somebody had killed themselves, a man with roughly the same build as what she had seen in the door had killed himself actually right similar in a similar location there. And so that's that's one of those examples where there seems to be kind of specific knowledge that some people have from these stories that uh, how would they have? Like there, there's no reason this suicide was never publicized. Uh, the location of it certainly wasn't. And so there's just things that that are beyond coincidence. Now, much of your... Uh, your crime scene investigation, I would guess, would include homicide. Uh, are there incidents or stories either that have happened to you or, or a colleague in which perhaps the, the, uh, the, the ghost or the spirit of the victim uh, ended up riding a, hitching a ride home with the investigator? Yes, that, there's actually two instances in the book that talk about that. But since the book has come out and I've talked to more people, it seems that this isn't uncommon. And this is one of those really weird and kind of unsettling uh, takeaways from this book is that, yes, it does seem that spirits do sometimes follow their investigators home. And it's actually the first story, this is like story number one, that really, th this happening that happened to my good friend Mitch, um, this is the story that really kind of launched uh, 
my active collecting and writing down some of these stories. And what happened was uh, we were we were investigating a homicide. It was a very tragic affair where a uh, man had kidnapped his estranged wife from her place of employment and then gone to her parents' house where she was living and took the whole family hostage, took the estranged wife and her parents hostage. There was a little bit of a shootout with the police. The uh, father was able to get away, but during kind of the ensuing standoff and everything, the perpetrator killed his estranged wife and her mother. And like I said, just really, really sad. That, that one has always stuck with me because I've thought, who watched who die? Did, did the mother have to watch her daughter die or did the daughter have to watch her mother die? And just very, very tragic. And yeah, like I said, that one's always kind of stuck with me, even though that was years ago. But anyway, at one point in the investigation, we were all there. But at one point, my good friend Mitch was alone with with the, the two deceased individuals. And he was a young investigator at the time. And he was, you know, still kind of figuring out how he was going to approach things. And so he he kind of kneeled down in front of the younger of the two victims, the, the wife, and he said, okay, tell me what happened to you. And he didn't expect an answer. He was just doing it as a mental exercise, you know, just let's, all right, what happened to you? Let's work this out. Let me, you know, go through this exercise mentally to put things together. But anyway, so like I said, he wasn't expecting an answer, but he he opens this door. Well, as soon as he says that, the lights in the house go out. Of course. Of and, course. Right. Right. And he's he's a little alarmed. So he's sitting there in, in this room with two um, corpses. And so he doesn't know how long the lights were off. But to him, it seemed like a, a millennia. But eventually they came back on. And so he's a little shaken by this. And so he goes out. And we were standing out on the, on the side of the road. I don't know. I can't remember exactly if we were taking a break or if we had something to do out there. Um, but he comes out to us and says, hey, guys, uh, did you notice the lights in the neighborhood here? The house lights go out? And we're like, no, no, everything seemed fine. And he's like, oh, okay, okay. So he went back in. You know, we were there for a couple of days putting the scene together. And then we were done. Well, anyway, almost imperceptibly, at first, weird things started to happen to Mitch at his home. And the first thing that he really started to notice was the behavior of his dog. And so in the front of the book, this dog was a pug and he was very eccentric. And unfortunately he's since passed away. So we kind of dedicated the book to this dog and his name was the dude. And so the dude started to act very strangely. He would be just sitting there in, in the room where the TV was, and all of a sudden, dude would look up in the corner of the room, and his eyes would track across the top of the kind of the ceiling and the wall, and then he would just go back to normal. Or he would it would act like he was watching somebody walk through a room. He would look at the door, and his head would turn across the room, and then out the other door, and then he would be fine. Sometimes he would behave very irrationally around water. Um, specifically the upstairs bathroom 
uh, when Mitch would go up to use the facilities, as it were, uh, the dude would run up to the door and be scratching on the door, barking and freaking out. And so all these things are happening, and Mitch is just like getting a little frustrated, like, what is wrong with you, dog? Well, that wasn't the only thing that started to happen. There started to be electrical anomalies in his house. You know, like you said, of course, when the lights went out, we know from hearing ghost stories and different things that they seem to have some sort of control over electricity. And so there would be a room, just one room in his house that would, there would be no power in it. So he would go and check the breaker. Everything's fine. The breaker wasn't tripped. He has no idea why the power's out. Then it would be back on in a little while. Nothing, you know, no big deal. Uh, he was late one morning for work and we were giving him, uh, we were razzing him and he was like, I don't know what happened. My alarm clock went off. It was just off. Like it had no power. The rest of the room was fine. My computer, everything was on. The alarm clock was dead. And so all these just weird things started to happen. And, you know, it, like I said, it was imperceptible at first. You don't, you know, one thing happens, you don't start to connect the dots. Anyway, so this went on for a while. He started to notice it more and more, but he wasn't really, sh you know, he didn't know what to make of it. Well, one day a, uh, uh, he had a new girlfriend and she came over to the house and she was an intuitive. So first thing she says when she walks in the door, she looks around and says, whoa, Mitch, uh, you have a ghost in your house. Wow. <laughs> and Mitch is like, oh, great. And so it, at that point, he, it, the light clicked on a little bit. And so kind of he, she started to ask him a few questions and they went back and forth a little bit. And by process of elimination, they figured out that it was this girl, this young woman who had been murdered. And when Mitch had asked that question to her, tell me what happened to you, she latched onto him. It was that moment of kind of opening the door to her, acknowledging her or whatever, that she latched onto him and followed him home. And she was there. Like, once he got used to it and once he kind of knew what was going on, he's a pretty cool customer. And so he wasn't really freaked out about it. And he always felt she was there in that house until he moved. And yeah, it was, it, it, it was a really interesting story. Like I said, that was the first one, but it opens up first one that I collected, but it just opens up the, all this range of possibilities. Like we, we see dead bodies sometimes every day and what is actually going on? Are, are right, they following right. us home or do they only follow us home when we open that door? And so I don't know. It, it's, it's fascinating and I don't really know what to make of it. I don't have, I've never felt like one's followed me home, but I don't know. Well, as you say, you know, you're, you're a skeptic, you're a man of science and evidence. And yet, as you readily acknowledge in fingerprints and phantoms you're a superstitious guy you have your you know we were talking earlier because you're you're wearing your original six toronto maple leaf jersey tonight um that um you know you have certain rituals and and uh uh one of them has to do with uh, on call night and um t tell me about that ritual that you have <laughs> well it's funny like most most of the crime scene investigators that I know have a, well, I won't say most, several. But, uh, this isn't a topic that I've brought up a lot, but 
a lot of my closest friends, we have an on-call ritual that like the, the way our shift is we have someone covering, uh, 21 hours a day, seven days a week. And then there's four hours where, um, where we're on call. And so I have this superstition that if I don't wear my socks to bed, which I hate, I'll get called out. And so it's, it's just one of those funny things. And what one of my partners, uh, he fills out his overtime slip in advance. If he, and if he doesn't do that, he gets called out. And so, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of ritual <laughs> rituals, but yeah, that's uh, it's just one of those funny things. I think a lot of athletes and a lot of people have their different superstitions. Sure. I do wash the socks though. It's Thank not you. like, Thank you for that. You know, I mean, your, like your wife socks. thanks you for that. I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I don't think I get away with it, but yeah, I, I've heard some athletes don't wash their socks or, well, for, the other, for the, whole season. the other superstition you have, and a lot of people have that we share is, is centered around numbers. And of course there's one set of numbers that certainly strikes fear in, in anyone even remotely familiar with the Bible. And that is six, 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 the number of the beast. How does that figure into crime scene investigation? <laughs> well, um, you, you never want the case number 666. You know, that would, that would be kind of bad luck. But the, the story in the book that, uh, that you're referring to was a weird one. Like, and, and I wouldn't even say this is a ghostly story necessarily. Not every story in the book is like uh, a, spook, a spook story. I mean, there's plenty of you know, just kind of some weird stories too. But in this one, we got called to a, a scene where a lady had been walking down the street and she was, she was older, but you know, didn't, as far as we knew, have any, uh, any health problems that were extremely aggravating, but she's walking down the street and dies, just keels over and dies in the front yard of this, this house. And so we get on the scene and you know, there, there's no sign of foul play and, you know, there's no injuries. There's no, you know, blood. There's no nothing really sticking out. And, you know, it's it's very weird, but people do just keel over and die. And unfortunately, that happens to young people, too. Their heart will give out or whatever. So, you know, it wasn't really wasn't really striking us as, you know, anything that we were super worried about. But as we started to go through some of her property. I was just, I photographed the scene and photographed her and documented that there was no injuries. And, and when we started to go through her stuff, she had a shopping bag and it was a Seven Eleven bag. And she was just about two blocks away from the Seven Eleven that we hang out at, um, that on, on 24th and Monroe in Ogden. So, if you're ever in Ogden, Utah, that's the best 7-Eleven in town. There. But, right. <laughs> um, anyway, she, yeah, they, they have great Dr. Pepper. Uh, they have a good mix of Dr. Pepper, nachos and whatnot. But anyway, so I'm going through her stuff and, you know, she had bought a few things, you know, just a few little food items. But I grab her receipt and I'm looking at it to say, oh, okay, is this, because receipts cannot give you some good information and stores have cameras. So if you have, well, this person was in the store here. At this time, then you can pull up the footage, see if anything was going on. So I grab her receipt and I'm looking at it. 
and the total of her groceries, the total of her purchase was $6.66. Bingo. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Maybe that's why she died, guys. And they're like, oh, whatever. <laughs> but you know, who knows? You know, it's probably just a coincidence. And when we went up and talked to the clerks at 7-Eleven, they said when she was in there, she was sweating profusely and was kind of pale. And so she probably had some cardiac episode. But yeah, when you see that number on a woman on the receipt of a woman who just killed over and died for no reason. You know, it, it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up a little. Sure, sure. Sometimes it's uh, the universe is screaming at you to pay attention to something. Sometimes we're not really sure what. With For me, the number is 1010. It's everywhere. Um, see, I, I see the number 333 everywhere. Oh, interesting. Like every time I look at my clock... Well, not every time, but, you know, around that time of day, I always seem to look at my clock when it says 333. Supposedly means balance. I looked it up. That, that The number 333 means balance, maybe. So maybe I need more balance in my life. I don't know. It's also half of the mark of the beast, so. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, just, just saying. <laughs> um, there's an interesting story here as a police officer named Damien. Not sure if he was a colleague or you heard this sort of through the grapevine, uh, involving uh, an, uh, a strange, well, reek, really, a foul odor in a, in a new condominium. Tell me about that story. Well, the Damien, the Damien story is really interesting. And he, he, was, a, he was an officer who worked with this. And uh, he, he left the department and he actually... Whoops, we lost you. You cut out there. Hang on. Okay, so he he'd recently left, or he he left the department a few years ago. But he came to one of my book signings a few weeks ago, and so we caught up. And he came to get the book, and because his story's in it. And so yeah, he had uh, he had moved into moved into a new place, and they had a lot of weird things going on. And yeah, the the smell that you talked about, and but the thing that really kind of disturbed me about the whole story is one one day a, a small child was was with them. I don't think it was his son. Um, I think it was a nephew. I can't remember. I can't remember now. But anyway, he uh, he was he said, hey, Damien, there's there's a scary man over in the corner of the room. And so Damien looks over there and uh, there's nothing there that he can see. And so he's trying to help the child out. And he's like, oh, well, I'll go beat up that scary man for you. And so he goes over to the corner where the child is indicating and starts to punch the air. Well, the kid loses it. Seeing Damien do that, the kid freaks out and is just hysterical. He's like, stop, no, don't do that, don't do that. And because, you know, it, the Children a lot of times can see things that we can't, I, and along with dogs. And so he, he stops and he, he calms the child down and, and you know, they kind of move on from there. Well, one day they were getting ready to go to the store and he uh, puts his cell phone on the, the corner of the couch and then he has to run back upstairs for something and he comes down and this is similar, this similar area to where the child was freaking out when he came down his cell phone was gone and he had just ran up the stairs to grab something his keys or something and 
he comes back down and his phone is gone. So he looks under the couch, he pulls the cushions up, he looks all over. He can never find this phone. Like he has no idea where the phone is. And so they were kind of in a hurry. So his wife's like, well, just let's, let's just go and, you know, we'll find it later. And so, so they leave. And while they're at the store, her phone, the, the wife's phone rings and it's Damien's phone number. Oh. And the phone that they can't find, that's gone. Right. And and so she answers it and there's no, you know, it'd be a great story if it was some, you know, evil voice on the line. <laughs> but there was just nothing. You know, if this was, if I was embellishing, I would have, you know, put something in there. But he, they, she answers the phone. There's just nothing there. And they're like, what is going on? The phone, we couldn't find it. And so, the, you know, they do their thing and they go back and they they never were able to find that phone. And Damien, when we when he came and talked to me a few weeks ago at the signing, he said even after they moved out, they could never, ever find that phone. And so, you know, what what's going on there? Like the, the, the way the child was and the, the horrible smell and the, the missing, missing phone and like what – I don't know. I have no explanation for it, but whatever was going on, that child lost it when he was pretending to punch, punch that area. So wow. I think maybe whatever it was got upset and took Damien's phone. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, why not consider becoming a supporter? Go to patreon.com forward slash the conspiracy show and check out our three support tiers the truth seeker tier the whistleblower tier and the star chamber tier donors can receive access to an exclusive monthly google hangout on air or a monthly live chat with me you can also be eligible for a monthly draw and a chance to win conspiracy show and conspiracy unlimited merch patreon.com forward slash the conspiracy show your support is greatly appreciated Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. The author of Fingerprints and Phantoms, Paul Ramosh, is here. There's one story in here. I mean, there, I think there are others, but th- this one, this one actually happened to you, right? I'm talking about the uh, the uh, the face at the window. Yes. Yeah. Got to share that with me. Yeah, and so that's that's a funny story. You know, I don't I don't necessarily know um, what to make of that necessarily, but the that that's one of my favorite chapters in the book because I talk about are wonderful police women in this field and they don't get enough credit for what they do. And it's, it's kind of hard for women working in law enforcement because it is a really macho kind of profession and there's still a lot of old kind of misogyny and different things. But our, the police women we have are so great because they are very good at deescalating situations. If someone's very upset, um, 
our our female officers are so good at kind of talking them down and just calming them and you know making peaceful resolutions you know and in this day and age with the trouble with police shootings and different things you know that's something that's really needed and so the the chapter this chapter starts with a story where one night I was heading to my office and I pulled down the street and there's this guy in the middle of the road and he's just screaming that people are trying to shoot him and so um as a crime scene investigator, I am not a sworn officer. I don't have a gun. I'm a civilian, uh, non-sworn, don't have any weapons. And so- You, you say we, you're, on the, you're the cleanup crew. Right, exactly. So I, I, I probably would, sh- if I had a gun, I'd probably shoot myself in the foot, to be honest. I'm <laughs> you know, not, a, not a big gun guy. But um, so I, you know, I, don't, I don't have any weapons. And, but, I, but I do have a marked car. And so a lot of p- times people confuse us for officers. And so I pull over or I pull to- up to this guy and roll down my window. And I'm like, sir, what's the matter? And he's like, someone's trying to kill me. And he's, he's just freaking out. And so I get on the air the, on the police radio and say, hey, can you know, I get an officer here um, to this intersection? And I sounded more panicked than that, I'm sure. And people said they could hear the guy yelling in the background of my radio traffic. And so I'm, I'm trying to calm this guy down and he's just really agitated. And, and after a minute, I kind of get the feeling he's not really, someone's not really trying to kill him, but he's on drugs. He's on meth. And so anyway, at one point he's trying to crawl into my window and I'm trying to push him out and I'm sure it just looked totally ridiculous. Well, anyway, um, the first officer to respond was, uh, her name is Steph. She's one of those wonderful police women that we have. And she, it was amazing. She grabbed, she grabbed the guy, but not in a super threatening way, calmed him down, um, got some handcuffs on him, got him sitting on the side of the road and calm in like 30 seconds. I was just so amazed at her professionalism and how well she de-escalated this situation. Well, it turns out that this guy had been, the, the cops were looking for him. He had been wandering all over town, trying to break in doors, and he was high as a kite on meth. So that's, that's one of those stories. I always tell Steph, you know, you saved my life. And she said, oh, no, I didn't. But, you know, it's kind of a fun thing. But it's, it's one of those stories I'll always remember. But um, a few years later, I was on that exact same road, and this time I was driving the other way. I was going eastbound instead of westbound, but uh, there was a train. And so I stopped for the train, and I'm just sitting there looking at my phone, and all of a sudden I get this feeling that I'm being watched. And I turn my head and look, and there's this man's face, a very haggard man's face, looking in my window, just staring. And I... I, I don't think I uh, wet myself, but maybe a little. <laughs> I won't tell. Don't ask, don't tell, I guess, on the wedding. But um, he, uh, he was looking at me and remembering what had happened before. Um, I wasn't going to roll my window down this time. <laughs> so Good choice. I, I yelled through the window. I'm like, hey, what, what do you want? And he was – he seemed – out of it like he wasn't really sure where he was or who he was but 
he had kind of a weird far off look in his eye and he he's he yelled through the window where am i and i yelled back what do you mean where are you and he's like i don't know where i am and i said well you're at you're at 17th street by the by the rail, railroad tracks and he was like oh okay and then he just started to walk away and so this time the train is gone and i i pull forward and i left him where i thought i left him was in the middle of the street and so i pull forward a little bit and i think oh man twice in one career that's that's not fair this weird <laughs> guy at my window and so i look up at the rearview mirror to where he should have been and he's not there there you go did it and have, so i it wasn't I the same guy know. was it it wasn't the same guy was it it could have been, I don't know. But I, you know, I, I'm i not saying he was a ghost. He could have stumbled off into the bushes, but it was just really, really weird. He should have been right there in the road, but he wasn't. So, I don't know, that's more of a, I'm not necessarily attributing that to the paranormal, but probably just uh, alcohol, but. <laughs> well, a great a great story nonetheless, and uh, the book is filled with them. Um, has final question: Has have these stories and these experiences have they have they changed your your belief system? Have they changed your your outlook on life in any way? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I I come from a pretty uh, spiritual upbringing. Um, and so I, I really didn't ever having have any trouble believing in spirits or the afterlife or anything like that. That was part of my culture growing up. And so no, I wouldn't say. I mean, it it poses some interesting questions. You know, what is really going on? Um, one of the one of the weirdest stories in the book is that um, several of my coworkers have heard my voice or my sneeze when I'm not there. So they've had experiences that seem like it's a haunting, but it's with with me. And so, like, I really don't know what to think about that. I mean, like I said, several coworkers, they've been there late at night alone. They've heard my voice, clear as the nose on your face behind them, say their name. And it didn't frighten them because they thought it was me. They right. turn around right. and I'm nowhere to be found. They search the whole office, nowhere. My car's not there. I'm not there. And so... You're the ghost. I, I am. Uh, maybe you were interviewing a ghost. Maybe this is the <laughs> greatest interview in paranormal radio history right here. But, so I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. And so I think, yeah, it hasn't changed my belief system, but it certainly has posed a lot of very interesting questions. I, I think that that particular situation, maybe it speaks to the strong bond that you must have with, with your colleagues in, in uh, law enforcement and, and crime scene investigation. You work closely together. You, uh, you know, you share a great deal. And so... Perhaps that that's that's just a testament to the to the strong relationship and the bond that you have. Yeah, yeah. Or you know maybe it's the the echo in time theory or the uh, recording in stone kind of theory that that some people have about ghosts that it's not really a spirit; it's just some form of energy or 
it's a hiccup in the matrix or something. You know, I, I don't know. It, it's it's fascinating to think about. Well, I'm sure there are many, many more stories to fill many, many more volumes. Most of these take place in, in Utah, I believe. So you've got 49, 49 more states to go. Right. And I would love if if any of your listeners have uh, some stories kind of related to law enforcement and that. I would love it if they'd reach out to me on Facebook. I love to hear new stories. How do they how do they reach out on Facebook? So just on Facebook, uh, Paul Ramash is and I'm the only one of them, R-I-M-M-A-S-C-H. And then the probably where I would prefer to hear the stories on are my uh, fingerprints and phantoms Facebook page. So if you just search fingerprints and phantoms, my Facebook page for the book will pop up and send me a message. Tell me your stories. I'd love to hear about it. And how do we get the book? So it's Barnes and Nobles has it on the shelves. Um, but all the internet retailers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, they all have it. So it's through Schiffer publishing out of Pennsylvania. They have a really good line of uh, paranormal and eclectic, sort of topics and so they're a really good publishing company as well paul great meeting you thanks for spending some time with me oh it was my pleasure all right before i dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs i'll fill you in on what's in store for the next episode of conspiracy unlimited hey this is tony merkel host of the confessionals a blog talk radio podcast that brings you weekly interviews with eyewitness accounts of strange and unexplained events From paranormal activity to UFO encounters to Bigfoot sightings, step into the confessionals as we explore mysterious real-life stories. Check us out on your favorite podcast app or theconfessionalspodcast.com. Many thanks to Conspiracy Unlimited for having me on the air. I'll see you all on The Confessionals. Coming up next time, Dr. Rita Louise, author of Stepping Out of Eden, will be here to talk about the origins of mankind and what makes us human. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.